0: You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. Pardon the interruption, but just a quick message from me to let you know about the leadership survey we have just placed on the website. Here at The Great Coaches, we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, but we have gone back to the transcripts of the more than 200 great coaches we've interviewed to identify their key leadership traits. We've then created a survey of 20 questions to help you compare your leadership style to theirs. It's free, only takes a few minutes to complete and should help you find areas of relative strength and weakness. If you'd like to know more, check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect... It's not about that scoreboard out there.
1: This is a chance. A lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal.
0: We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
1: Your defense has got to be better. We've no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity.
0: My name is Paul Barnett. And you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Alison Annan. Alison is an Australian field hockey player who represented her country 228 times and won gold medals at the 1996 and 2000 Olympics. She transitioned into coaching in 2003 and led the Netherlands women's team to a silver medal at the 2016 Summer Olympics in Brazil and then a gold medal at the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, as well as gold medals at the 2017, 2019, and 2021 Women's Euro Hockey Nations Championship and the 2018 Women's World Cup. This interview was recorded in late January 2022, and then in mid-February 2022, Allison resigned as the coach. The Dutch national team after a dispute with the administration about the team culture. Listening back, I think some of Alison's dissatisfaction and self reflection comes across in the interview. What is indisputable though is that Alison is that rare individual who has won an Olympic gold medal as both an athlete and a coach. And from these experiences, she believes that if you are confronted and challenged by a coach, then you will be a better athlete. Key to challenging in the right way is through the use of observation skills and heightened communication, delivered as best as you can at the right time and location. And it seems these challenging skills may be one of the reasons some of the team felt dissatisfied with her. However, as many of the great coaches have said in these interviews, the role of the coach is to challenge. In fact, the iconic Rick Charlesworth says it best with this quote, Sometimes you have to trouble the comfortable and comfort the troubled. Allison also believes that when you create your own pressure, you will perform better than when pressure is put on you from outside, and you achieve this through reflection on your behaviour in response to the performance challenges you are facing. Other key highlights from this interview for me were how she uses failure as a positive criteria when selecting the team, how she had to learn to not coach as she played when she first started coaching, but instead go back and think about how you need to communicate to impart knowledge and her focus on learning and growing, and in particular, making mistakes and using them as motivation to keep going. This was a deep conversation with a rare individual, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you'd like to help our podcast, which is fully independent and free from ads, you can follow the link to our Patreon page, where we offer exclusive content to our supporters. And now, please enjoy our interview with Alison Annan. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Alison Annan, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Paul. Alison, something really easy to get us off with. Could you tell us where you are in the world, and what you've been up to so far today.
1: Uh, so I am in the Netherlands, and this morning I dropped my mother at the airport, so she's been over from Australia for a month. So we took her to the airport this morning and got myself tested yesterday for COVID, uh, got the test back this morning that it was negative, so that's good news. Right, good. Nothing more than that, yeah.
0: I don't know if it was good or bad that your mum left, but anyway, we agree. <laughs> we thank you for agreeing to chat with us today. <laughs> Alison, let me start by asking you about some of the great coaches that you've had first-hand experience with. There's Mark Lamas. there's, of course, Rick Charlesworth, and there's Brian Glencross. There's three really big names right there. And so what I wanted to start with was asking you from this perspective, what do you think it is that great coaches do differently that sets them apart?
1: So I guess the first thing is I would have a different list of great coaches. I think that there's a few coaches that I've had in the past that have definitely had a huge impact on me as a coach. The best coaches that I've ever come across are Brian Glencross, of course, who gave me the chance to play in the national team. He took a chance on me as a Young athlete. And I think that that's something that I've taken away of giving chances to athletes that have got potential. And that's what he did. My high school coach, Nick Kell and John Robinson, who were two coaches who taught me to be me. And I was 12, 13 when I first met them. And, you know, they've had a major impact on me. Mick, as a one time coach with a one tournament who I still have contact with. Forty years later, or thirty-five years later, and John Robinson has been a second father to me since I really met him. Then I have uh, Beth Shea and Judy Lang, who are two completely different coaches along the way. Who the one a lot a very full of empathy, uh, who taught me that coaching players is really coaching people, and Judy taught me, and that was Beth, and Judy taught me that. It's not easy to be at the top and get to the top. So she was a really hard coach that taught me the tough side of the game and tough side of mentally being prepared. And then coming across Rick as a national coach for a very long time, he showed me that being innovative and not just being satisfied with how good you are today but really wanting to be better the next day. So I'm never... I'm never satisfied and I saw a coach who was fully committed to us as a team but also fully committed to himself in learning and growing, which is something that I've definitely taken on as a coach and a person to keep growing and to keep learning and make mistakes, stand up, keep going, get as much information on myself but also on coaching, on coaching people, all aspects of our sport to always be a step ahead. And I think that those coaches are the coaches that I would definitely have in my top 10 coaches that I've ever had. So, I mean, and each coach had something different. Not one coach had the same thing, which makes it even, for me, even better that I've been able to pick and choose from each coach what makes me the coach that I am today.
0: Well, we'll get on to some of those topics in there, learning, failure, innovation as we go along. But I'd like to actually start by going back to your playing days because you were the FIH player of the year in 1998 and 2000 and you were the coach of the year in 2017, 2018 and 2019. But transitioning from playing to coaching, you say you had to learn to communicate more effectively, particularly when it came to body language. Can you tell us what you learned through that process of improving and transitioning from one to the other? One of
1: the biggest things you is when you transition from a player to a coach, the first three, four years you're coaching as you played. So your coaching level, you're starting at a different level to which the group might even be, even with, with tactical thoughts. I would be explaining something within the press you know, in our game and I would start at a level without even thinking the basic knowledge of what a press is and what it means and where do I have to go and what are my responsibilities. I just skipped that because I was coaching as a player means that you're not communicating effectively. When I moved to Holland, I was coaching as an Australian, which doesn't always work because, you know, in Holland, they have a yes but syndrome, so everything's yes but. We can do it this way, we can do it that way. And in Australia, it's more, yes, okay, we'll, we'll just do it because the coach says that we should do it. So I guess you're learning along the way the whole time what works and what doesn't work, and there's no one real, one real answer and one real way. For me, as a coach, you are the person who gets the most feedback from everyone, from every angle, if you're alert and if you're aware of it, because everything you say gives you a reaction in some sort of way, in body language from a player, from a staff member. They'll either react physically, they'll react with their voice. So we're all getting feedback every single time you're presenting something which means that you continually grow to find out what works with who and what doesn't work, and in that way you create your own sort of form of communication. I've read a lot of the communication books and I've read a lot of the team-building things that get done and the MBTI colour coding things, and I think that that's, as a coach, you really have to find yourself in who you are as a person to be coaching and not lean on all of the books and information that you can get. You can read it, but learning, for me, you can read a book, but really learning that is implementing things. When we talk about communication, there are so many different forms of communication that you can get lost in translation trying to do it all and lose yourself. Who am I and how do I communicate what works best for me and what's the reaction that I'm getting back from players and staff to be able to communicate better? And I think one of the biggest things is, Communication is one of the most difficult things worldwide and we will never, ever get it right. No one ever gets it right. So it's about getting it right most of the time. And I think that that's, as a coach, I've never really leaned on the theoretical side of things because it's. I just want to be unique to myself. I think that that's something that if you look at communicating, one thing I would always say is be true to yourself and don't try and be someone else and learn to communicate within the person that you are.
0: Alison, I've heard you say on multiple occasions you coach the person first and the player second. Why is that order important to you?
1: I guess because they are people first and they're players second. You know, they were born a person and they became a player. And I know if I look back at my career, if I had spent more time learning about who I was and if I knew back then what I knew today, I would have been a better player. So if I was a better person or I knew how to communicate better back, you know, when I was playing or I knew how to deal with certain situations, I would have been a much better player and that's all about coaching the person. And the player has to let you coach the person because that's also something that a player may not want to be coached as a person but as a player and that's the struggle that you have as a coach that some players just want to come in and be coached as a player And I'm not that coach. I am a coach who is interested in players, is interested in their development as a person, because I truly believe that if they know who they are, if they are confronted, if they are challenged, then they will always be a better player. And that's not just challenging them to do new things on the hockey field. It's challenging them to do a lot of things outside of the hockey field that will help them deal with situations on the hockey field become more mature.
0: Alison, I'd like to follow up on this idea of coaching the person first because I understand intuitive what you're saying and helping unlock the individual's abilities and be the best version of themselves through figuring out what motivates them. But there's 20 plus people on a squad that you coach and you lead. How can you do that when there are so many people in the team?
1: Well, it's not a continual process, right? So it's not that you're busy with them every single day. You're You're feeding them information as a group, uh, you're feeding information individually. I'm not the only person involved in this process, so you know I have a staff. I had a very good staff who were also part of this process. We had psychologists. We had a whole group of people that were involved in this process, so it's not something that I take on myself. I mean, one of the biggest things as a coach is I had to learn that, is to step back and observe. Sometimes we as coaches get too involved in doing everything and I did that at the beginning of my coaching career and over the past years I've learned to step back and take on a more observing role. If you look at an Alex Ferguson who didn't do too much on the field but did a lot of observing as a manager, he called himself the manager, that gives you time to what we call performance behaviour and performance behaviour is something that things that happen intuitively and things that you can help within a reaction. So someone might react to something intuitively their initial response might not help their performance. So that's part of changing and helping change that response so that it does affect, it does does help your performance. But you can only do that when you're observing, when you're not with the details, dealing with the details, wanting to do everything, having to know everything. So the past few years I've taken a lot of steps back and started observing. And when you start observing, when you have, you know, I had at one stage I had 35 players. When you're observing, it's not about having long discussions with players. You see something, you can approach a player, you can have a chat with them, give them information, feed them information or ask them how they're going and then move away. So sometimes it's really small conversations and sometimes it's more in-depth conversations, but it's about observing what you're seeing, identifying together if we're seeing the same thing and seeing the same reaction and then making a plan with them. And in the end... It's about what the player does with it. If the player doesn't do anything with that information, it's not my responsibility. I'm not a coach who will talk to a player, make a plan and follow it up with them. They're responsible for their plan. And if that's all about being responsible for your own future, for your own career. So it's not as time consuming as it may seem, but it's definitely keeps me alert the whole time because I'm continually observing uh, the athletes and also my staff and we're in it together.
0: Alison, I'd like to follow up. You talk a little bit in there about watching the way people respond, they react. In fact, in many interviews I've seen with you, you talk about asking yourself this key question of, does this response behaviour stimulate performance or not? And something you challenge the athletes with. Can you tell us more about what you've learned between the link between response and behaviour?
1: They're all in the same, so response and behaviour is the same thing. So I've been working with a sports psychologist who works in Belgium and he's part of the Dutch Olympic Committee. And I've been working with him now for, I think, four years on performance behaviour. And we have, he came up with this model that you have the initial response from someone, the response that you would like, so the preferred response, and then you have a region of responses From stimuli that are just that internal. So they're like going back to childhood. So they're things that we as coaches shouldn't even go to. They're responding to something that may have occurred when they were in their youth. So we send those sorts of responses to the psychologist where you don't deal with that. They're not something that we're generally not able to see that in their response, but it's more you can sense that there's something there that's you're not educated to do and you're not educated to go there as a coach. But the initial response to certain stimuli brings on a certain behaviour that either helps someone perform or inhibits them to perform. In sport, maybe something that recognisable for everyone, umpire makes a bad decision. Some people, their initial response will inhibit them to perform so it'll work they'll get so worked up that they won't be able to perform because their mind's taken to the umpire they're spending so much more time dealing with the umpire than dealing with okay get on with it let's go so that's not an initial response that we would like so we'll talk to the player how do you deal with that how do we get you back on track Uh, and is that something that you come across somewhere else in your life and if that is then that might be something from the past so they'll go to the psychologist if not they'll we'll just so, what what responses are, what behavioural responses are we really looking for to make sure that you can continue to perform at a high level? Because in every single game, umpires make mistakes. We do too, as people. So, we look at those responses, and, and it may be that a player doesn't lose with an umpire decision. They may get frustrated and angry, but it helps their performance. So, the one it inhibits and the other one helps. So, we won't talk about To the person where it helps their response, helps their performance, that's fine. That's who they are. It helps their performance. But we'll go into discussion with the player where it does inhibit the performance. So that's on an individual basis. Then you have on a team basis that the person who performs better or doesn't get affected, the performance doesn't get affected when they react to an umpire, but it does affect the rest of the team. How do you deal with that? So then you're dealing with players individually and then the effect that it has on the team. And that makes it complex, but you're starting, you always start with the individual. And this is something where you're looking at the behaviours of players, uh, initial response, preferred response. You're pretty much always talking about, okay, is this how you want to react in this situation? And if the answer is no, how do you want to react and how do we get you there? And what do you need for help?
0: Hi everyone, I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So Eric, what kind of leadership skills do you help people develop here at the business school? I think the measure of a great team is whether a team is having the kinds of conversations they need to have in the organisation. And so when we try to develop the leaders of those teams, we want them not only to know how to identify the issues that the team needs to talk about, but also how to have the conversation so that people feel comfortable and focused on the key issues that matter. Thanks, Eric. The Master's Programmes at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you and transform the way you think. Well, talking about behaviour, I've heard you talk about the Ringelman Effect Can you tell me how you use this in your coaching?
1: So do you know the Ringelman effect?
0: I researched it when I saw you mention it. it.
1: Ah. (laughs) All right, so the Ringelman effect is very, it's an interesting theory. So what it says is if two people are doing tug of war together, both people with the same amount of energy and effort, the more people you get on your team, the less energy and effort you will give because you've got people, I mean, if I've got someone who's, bigger and stronger than me against someone for look across the room and there's two people who are less strong, then i think he can carry the load or she can carry the load because they're bigger and better. But in the end, so we talked about this within our team, if everyone within our team exerts the same amount of energy and gives the same amount of effort, we will always be better than every other team because we're aware of the ringelman effect. So if you look at teams who lose players, someone gets sent off, generally the team that has less players performs in the initial phase better because they all increase their effort level. So we had a principle in our team that you can always work hard. It doesn't matter if you're good, you've got a good day or a bad day. If all of our efforts are at the maximum of what we can give that day and we don't lean on each other, then we will always be better than the opposition. Alison, your
0: thoughts on pressure are also very interesting. I have heard you talk about... When you create your own pressure, you will perform better than when pressure is put on you from outside. But, of course, for many of us, it's the pressure from outside that causes sleepless nights, restless mornings and so on. What advice do you have for people on learning to shift the focus from outside to inside generated pressure?
1: It's one of the most difficult things to create your own pressure because the biggest area of comfort zone is within yourself. Your comfort zone is you let in and what you don't let in. There are a lot of athletes who don't want to feel the pressure from within so they won't go to the boundaries they won't try and I'm here and this is good enough and this this works so that's enough it's when other people start expecting things from you that players become nervous so i really have a theory of if you expect more from yourself then it doesn't matter what other people will expect from you because you're dealing with what your own expectations and When you're working within a team and if you're talking, are my expectations realistic and how do I get there? And you've got a plan and that's a well-thought-out plan, then it doesn't matter what other people think. And it doesn't matter. I mean, we spent the last five years being the number one in the world and everyone just expecting us to win. But that wasn't pressure for us. The biggest pressure for us was being the best that we could be every single day. And if you... As a coach, also expect that from the players to be the best they can be every single time they're on the pitch. Then it doesn't matter what the outside world does because the inside pressure is so big. You've got your own individual pressure within your own team to do that. So it's, in the end, letting your teammate down or letting yourself down is so much harder than letting someone down that you don't know. And so it's all about expectations, dealing with that, Talking about that within each other. But really, as an athlete, and I know, you know, I had a phase where I thought this is enough, as good as I can be. But as an athlete, you're never as good as you can be. There's always better, just like a coach, there's always better. I mean, what, you know, Tom Brady's now, what is he, 45 and he's still getting better. So I'm never a coach who accepts that good is good enough.
0: I'd like to pick up on this idea of good not being good enough and learning and developing. And I have a quote from you. And you say, if I don't see someone failing, I don't see someone learning. So what I'd like to ask you is, can you share a failure that you've had as a leader and what you've learned from it?
1: Oh, there's so many. (laughs) Just pick Um, a recent one. (laughs) Just pick a recent one. Look, I think one of the biggest things as a coach is your communication fails. I've had unexpected discussions with players that the timing wasn't right for me, wasn't right for them. And... Because you're in that moment, you just have that conversation. That's a fail. But if you don't have that moment, you don't learn and know that that's probably not the right moment to be having this discussion. That's certain things that players always ask coaches also what can I do, the national team? If I say to a player, A or do B, and they do A and B, they think that they're there. But whilst they're doing A and B, they're not failing. So how hard are they trying? Because when you learn something new, you will fail you won't be good at it because your focus will be on something else other than what you're already good at. And that's something that we as coaches and athletes have to understand that whilst you're learning, I mean, it's like, if you're learning to ride a bike, you'll fall off the bike. You won't get it right the first time. So you can get on the bike and fall off and say, it doesn't work for me, or you can keep getting on the bike, falling off. And in the end, ride the bike really well. And I just, really believe that failing is a part of learning and if I don't see someone get on the bike I don't know if they're trying because I don't see them falling off. Problem with this theory I think is that if the coach only sees the failures they'll judge players on their failures and I don't do that I don't judge them on their failures and I just I really believe that in particularly in our sport there's been athletes and players that have not been selected because they've failed trying And those are the players that you want in your team, players that are willing to try and fail instead of players that aren't willing to try and aren't willing to fail.
0: Alison, I have another great quote from you. I'd like to read it before I ask you the question. You say, my job is to compliment them when they are getting the best for themselves and remind them when they aren't. They have created their own culture within the team that keeps them hungry. We have built an environment where they are self-critical of themselves. It was the last part of this quote that caught my eye. And I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for other leaders on finding that balance between complimenting and being critical?
1: I think by also learning process, I don't think there is a line. I think that you can be critical and you can be complimentary, but in the end, particularly with women, they'll only hear the the criticism. Men, they will only hear the compliments. Men will tell you how good they are, and women, you have to tell them how good they are. And it's a really difficult line between criticism and compliment because it's who's it from? When did they say it? What context did they say it? It's about how you're feeling on that day. You're having a good day, you're having a bad day. You're open to hear it. Are you not open to hear it? So there's so many different elements of receiving and giving criticism and compliments that makes it a really complex thing. In the end, it has to be an environment where you can do it and you can accept it, and if it's not the right time, that the player that's given the criticism or compliment gives that person time and space to hear it, to put it somewhere where they can deal with it. But it's about timing. The younger players will probably accept it less and the older players will accept it more. It's all about experience. So, it's, again, it's a very complex thing, compliments and criticism. You no, know, I thought that our team was very good at that.
0: Back at the start, Allison, you said that if you were younger, back before if you'd learned to understand yourself more, you would have been a better player. What do you think stops people from understanding themselves enough to realize their potential?
1: I think that nowadays there's a lot of different things that stand in the way of really knowing who you are and what you want and if you look at Instagram and all the social media things nowadays, there's more people telling you on your, say, right, Facebook page or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that are saying or complimenting you than criticising you. And I've seen it at home. You've got two daughters and I've, I've got sons who walk around on TikTok the whole day and I'm, I, I don't understand it. But it's there because people make them feel good until someone doesn't and then their world starts in. Their world falls apart and I just think that we have to deal with as coaches so many f- different things nowadays that inhibit us to, and inhibit the players to find out and know who they really are. Parents, I mean, nowadays parents are more protective than ever. Back in when I was growing up, I used to go outside and, you know, my parents didn't know where I was and if I didn't do my homework then I'd get punished by the teacher at school. Nowadays, if they don't do their homework, the parents ring up and say, it's too much homework. I just think there's things happening nowadays that stop and inhibit players from learning, learning, just learning, learning who they are, learning what's to come, learning to deal with situations. And it's a concern of mine, particularly in sport, that there's going to be an environment in the future that doesn't allow for failure or doesn't prepare players and people for failure and failure is not a good thing it's
0: not fun you've been very generous with your time and i can see you've got a cough and everything but so i'll just ask one final question if i can and i'm going to phrase it with a quote because you've said i try and learn every day and of course you've backed that up with so many of your wonderful answers today but you also say my motivation is to help the players become better players but also better people So I wanted to finish by asking you, in the distant, distant future, when you hang up the whistle and you're no longer a great coach, well, you'll still be a great coach, but you'll no longer be coaching, (laughs) what is it that you hope is the legacy that you've left?
1: Wow, good question. Look, in the end, I hope that one day in the near distant future that it won't be every player but, uh, you know, a handful of players or... Will thank me for what I've, the opportunities that I've given them, and that I've helped them in just some small way to become a better person. In the end, winning and losing tournaments, it's not what it's really about. That's just really one small part of what we do as coaches. And when a player says thanks me for being their coach or helping them with something, and you can share that with each other, I think that's one of the most amazing things that you can do as a coach.
0: think that's a great place to end. Alison, thank you so much for your time today. I can see that you're struggling a little bit with a cough and a flu. I appreciate you spending a little bit of time to talk about hockey with us and look forward to sharing this conversation with a bigger audience around the world.
1: All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Hi everyone. It's Paul here and you have been listening to our interview with the great coach, Alison Annan. Some of the other key highlights for me were her learning about the importance of stepping back as a coach and observing rather than trying to do everything. Her comments about learning from getting communication wrong and becoming comfortable with this and instead focusing on getting it right as much of the time as she can. And wanting to leave a legacy where players thank her for the opportunities she has given them as well as helping them in a small way become a better person. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Alana Thomas, who was also one of our great coaches, who said... Looking for a podcast? Wrap your ears around at Coaches Great. You won't be disappointed. And Dan Ryan, who said, Incredibly powerful stuff, and the insights and storytelling is gold. Big thanks for the support, Alana and Dan. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.